Our reading today is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may, may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Father, I pray that we would remind ourselves of that truth every day. I pray that as a church we would remind each other of that truth every day that we have no reason to boast for the sacrifice on the cross was a free gift to us. And so I pray that we would live our lives like that. I pray that we would live our lives as a living sacrifice, Jesus, just as Jesus did for us. That we would live our lives in gratitude and thankfulness and servitude to the one who gave it all for us. We thank you, Father. We thank you for that gift. It's in your son's precious name I pray. Amen. Seated. Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Aletheia Church. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. I appreciate you guys being here with us uh, this morning. I just want to let some of you guys know we might have some people coming in late. So if people come in late and you see them, uh, you guys always do this, and it's fine because we're technically Baptists, and so you're all sitting in the back. And so, but you guys here in the front, uh, just make sure you can scoot in in case someone needs a seat, so we don't have to pull uh, more chairs out. Um, you guys may notice in front of the in the chair in front of you, unless you're in the front row, then you guys don't have one. Sorry, love you guys, but you don't get one. Uh, um, on, and, and the seat back in the chair in front of you, there's a little card, um, and it says serve on it. Uh, some of you guys have already been asking here, uh, since you started coming around to Aletheia, of ways that you can get involved here at the church. Um, after church today, we're going to have um, some of the leaders of the different ministry areas in the back, so you can connect with one of them. You'll see the signs back there in the back. You can also fill out one of these cards and just say, hey, I, I'm interested in doing whatever. Um, let me ask a question real quick, because I don't need to convince the ladies of this, but this is what I do. Um, if, you're a, if you are a male in this room, will you please raise your hand? Okay. If you are a male in this room and you want to be married one day, keep your hand up. Okay, that's good news. Okay, if you're a male in this room and you want to be married one day and you want to have kids, keep your hand up. Okay, if you're a male in this room and your hand is still up but you know how to change a diaper, keep your hand up. That's what I thought. <laughs> All right, so here's the deal. Um, our children's ministry needs help. And I'm gonna, I, I, I just don't need to convince women. I just don't. Dudes, practice on my kids. <laughs> it's really simple. So, because here's a, here's a true story, okay? When, when my wife had our first child, um, Gideon, she had a, a condition, and so she was, she was stuck in bed after she gave birth. And so guess who had to change the diapers? Me. Guess who didn't know how to change a diaper? Me. You wanna talk about awkward? 
Nothing is like your first experience changing your son's diaper and him peeing right in between your eyes because you don't know what you're doing. Okay? So we'll let you guys practice. We'll teach you. And practicing on other people's kids is a great way to kind of be introduced to how to raise and disciple and train up your own children. And so serving here in the children's ministry is a great way to do that. So dudes, I know you're uncomfortable. I know it's weird. I know it's going to be difficult. But don't think you're just going to walk into fatherhood one day and know what you're doing. Instead, come around some people that already know what they're doing who can kind of come alongside you and help get you ready for that. So I expect like 90% of you men who raised your hand to be back there signing up for the kids' ministry. There's plenty of other opportunities to get involved as well, but there's my pitch uh, to help love on the kids here so we can raise them up in an environment that's going to make much of Jesus and make much of what he's done in their lives and for them. All right, so if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Ephesians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be. And what we're going to see this morning in Ephesians chapter 2 is probably one of uh, the most important 10 verses in all of Scripture. And and I don't say that to to mean that what's said here is more important than the rest of Scripture. I I don't mean to say that to say that the rest of Scripture is unimportant. But I do say it because of this. The the issue that Paul addresses in these ten verses both asks and answers a very, very important question. It's a question that you do not want to to not have thought about and not have answered as you head into the end of your life. And I know we're we're in a room of mostly younger people, and so most of you guys probably aren't thinking about the end of your life, but the reality is is none of us is promised the 78.5 years that statistically we're told we're going to live. And so the reality is this. You should be thinking about these things now. You should be asking yourself important questions. And so for us, culturally in the South, the Bible Belt of the United States, right? we need to wrestle with this question. Do I understand the gospel? Do I understand... What God says is true about me and is true about himself. And when I say, do I understand the gospel, I know where many of you ran, especially if you grew up in the church. You ran to a list of intellectual intricacies about what the Bible says is true about Jesus and what he did. That is immediately where, you, where your mind went to. It was like, well, yeah, I, I know. I know how Billy Graham presented it, or I know the four spiritual laws, or I know evangelism explosion, or I know the way of the master, or whatever tool you might use to explain the gospel to someone, that is where you ran. But here's the deal. When I, when I say that Paul is going to address the question of whether we really understand the gospel or not, or not, I am not saying that you must know and agree to certain facts about Jesus. I'm not saying that you, you come to a, 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 an intellectual 
understanding that you're a sinner and that Jesus came and died on the cross in your place and that Jesus rose from the dead to show that sin had been defeated and to offer us new life. All of that is true. And all of that must be something that intellectually you submit to and believe in. But that is not what I mean by the question, do you understand the gospel? Because the gospel is more than agreeing to some facts. It's more than just memorizing some some gospel tract. It's more than being able to explain in four sentences or less the intricacies of what Christ came to do. No, the gospel, if understood properly, gives you an identity and reorients your entire life. It doesn't just correct some things that you think about, but it says this, God says this is who I am and who I am in light of him. See, what Paul wants us to understand as we read this letter to the church at Ephesus is that our identity is rooted in something far deeper than just some intellectual truths. As we saw in chapter 1, right, Paul said that our identity is rooted in the fact that God chose us. He chose to love us when we were unlovable. That is a a truth that goes far beyond me just understanding predestination or election or whatever term you want to use, right? It should penetrate to your heart saying, God loves me even though I'm not worthy. Right? Paul says in chapter 1 also that we're not just chosen, but that God gives us sight to see who we really are and so that we might see his love, that we might see his hope, that we might see his power, and that we might see his authority. That God grants those things to us. And today what we're going to see in these first 10 ver- verses of Ephesians chapter 2 is that in Jesus, our identity is that we are alive. Now, now before we dive into the text, there, there's something that I need to communicate because I think I'm going to step on some toes this morning is, is going to be my guess. Because I believe that what we're looking at today is going to be hard for some of you guys. It's, it's even admittedly hard for me at times to, to wrestle with what Paul says is true about the human condition. Because it's not something we're used to hearing, and it's not something that we're, we're taught growing up to believe is true about ourselves. Paul is going to tell us that we are far worse than we realize. That the condition you and I stand in is far worse than we dare imagine. That we are wicked beyond our wildest imagination and that there is no hope for us because we are dead. And I I know that many of you, if you grew up in the church, myself included, are probably used to hearing more of this kind of language. That that you do some bad things, uh, but you're not really an evil person. And, and, and if you've heard that, then you end up coming to this conclusion that because you're bad, you need Jesus to help wipe away some of those blemishes. And we might even have explanations in evangelism that use that terminology. You, you've done bad things, and so you need Jesus to wipe the slate clean. But overall, what that message communicates is that even though you do some bad things sometimes, you still have things under control. 
that overall you still know what right and wrong is and that you're mostly, you have it all together. That most of us that grew up in the South and grew up attending church at all, that's the, that's the lie we've bought into. Now, some of you guys in here this morning, you're like, I have no idea what Kevin's talking about. And you might even be walking here and say, I'm just not even that bad. I'm not a bad person. Here's the deal. Right, what Paul is going to talk about this, this morning is going to wipe the slate clean from both of those misunderstandings and try to recenter us to help us understand who we really are and then who God is in light of who we really are. Right, most of us have a view of the gospel that says we're bad people and we come to God and Jesus to become good. But that is not what the Bible teaches us. As Pastor Daniel reminded me this past week, he says we need to disconstruct deconstruct the notion that the gospel is about bad people becoming good because the gospel is about dead people being brought back to life. So as we look at the first 10 verses of Ephesians this morning, will you do something for me? Will you allow the words of Paul to penetrate your heart and shine a light on what you believe about yourself and what you know to be true about your own sin and who God is. And I can promise you this, if you do, everything about what God has done for you becomes more amazing. If you have a more honest and true understanding of who you really are without God, if you see how hopeless you really are, then the love, hope, and peace of God in Jesus is that much more beautiful and stunning to you. So let's look at the text, okay? Turn over to chapter 2 and look at just the first three verses with me. Look at what he says. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Right, so, so he starts off by saying this, right, in verse 1. Look, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Okay, so whether you are a follower of Jesus Christ in this room this morning, or you would say, no, I'm not a Christian, I'm here because, you know, this, this cute girl, our cute guy was on campus and invited me, or my coworker, or whoever it is, they invited me here this morning, or I don't even know why I'm here. Okay, here's where Paul says that every human being starts off. This is where we are, dead. Good news, right? It's like one of those Hallmark movies at Christmas time, right? Right? Paul says every single one of us is dead. Notice, notice he doesn't say, he doesn't say you're kind of naughty. He doesn't say that you're, you're weak. He doesn't say that you have the wrong political affiliation. He doesn't say that you just make bad choices. He says that we are dead. Now, Here's why that is important. Because death is a condition, not an action. Right? What I mean by that is you can't be sort of dead. You can't be kind of dead. Either you are dead 
or you're not. Even people that get resuscitated back to life are pronounced dead and then brought back to life. They're not kind of dead. They were legally dead and then brought back to life. And so Paul is saying human beings in their natural condition are born into spiritual death unto God. It's true of every person, every race, every culture, every human being that's ever been born when at the moment of birth, they're dead, right? As David says in the Psalms, when he's lamenting over his own sin with Bathsheba, he says that in sin, his mother conceived him, meaning that he was sinful from the womb. And I know that's hard for some of us to, to fathom because we look at kids and we're like, oh, they're really cute. They're cute little sinners, they're cute, dead sinners. I have people all the time with my, my, my youngest son, Josiah. He's like, he's really cute. And I'm like, that's part of his problem. It feeds his vanity. Right? He believes the universe revolves around him. And he wouldn't articulate it that way to you. But if you spent 20 minutes with him, you would see it. Because his condition is spiritually dead. Now, let me pause here and say this. This does not mean, Paul is not saying that because you are spiritually dead, it makes you the worst person alive on earth. That's immediately some people's pushback to this, right? We say, well, all of the human race is spiritually dead according to, to what Paul says is true about us. And someone's like, well, I'm not as bad as Hitler. Well, I mean, duh. I mean, come on. Right? Okay, you're not Hitler. Congratulations. Do you want an award? Right? The reality is this. You can be a pretty good person, do pretty good things, but spiritually, your condition is still dead. Any of you guys ever watched the show NCIS? Okay, some of you guys, right? It's mostly the older people in the room. Congratulations. <laughs> there we go, right? Robin is one of the older people in the room, right? Right, CBS is the old people's channel. That's why I know most of you younger people aren't watching it. But my wife and I are now hit, hit, have hit that time period in life where we love the old people shows. Right, and NCIS is this crime drama on CBS, right? And so in that show, right, they're constantly solving some sort of crime. And one of the, one of the characters in that show is he's, he's an examiner, and he examines dead bodies, right? And so they'll show scenes in that TV show from the morgue all the time. And if you walked into that morgue, right, and pulled out some of those bodies, guess what you, you would see? You would see some people that had been in part of bombings and their, their bodies all jacked up and you, you just see like clearly that person is dead. Like it, it is obvious, right? Because of the trauma that that person experienced. They're all cut up, burned, whatever it may be. You might pull another body out in that morgue and they look completely fine other than the fact of what? They're dead. Because even though some of the bodies in that morgue can appear to have no trauma and be completely fine outwardly, if you look at them, they're in a morgue for a reason. They're dead. Right? And so Paul is saying our condition, it doesn't matter what it looks like in comparison to someone else. Our condition unto God is death. Sure, it may not look as bad as your roommate. Sure, it may not look as bad as your cousin or your boss or your neighbor. But unto God, spiritually, we are born dead. Now, why does this matter? 
See, the reality is, is like some of you guys, you're, we, we want to push back against this. I know that my own inclination is like, come on, I can't really be that bad, right? Like, how, how can I be born dead? It doesn't make any sense. But Paul knows us because he's a human and he was spiritually dead. He knew, he knew what it meant to live a life of religious zeal and yet still be dead inside unto God. And what he knows is, is that if we think our problem as human beings is that we just do bad things sometimes, what are we going to do? We're going to overanalyze our behavior, and then we're going to create some sort of 10-step program to fix our issue so that God will love us again. If we think that our issue is just some bad behavior, we're going to correct the bad behavior. So Paul's point, though, and, and let me ask this, right? Have any of you ever seen your sin in your life at some point in time and in seeing, seeing that sinfulness resolve to God, I'm going to change? Any of you ever done that in here? Three of you. Okay, now, there the hands start going up a little. Actually, yeah, I think I've done that. Okay, in resolving to do that, of you guys that raised your hand, how many of you, of you guys have seen long-term lifetime success immediately? Not one hand went up. Because here's what is true about us as human beings. Behavior change does not bring life to death. It can't. And so Paul's point is, you're dead and you cannot save yourself. If we start from the platform of understanding that spiritually our sinfulness is tied to the fact that we are dead and broken and defective from the outset, then we can't try to save ourselves. And Paul needs us to understand that. And some of us are still, we're still sitting here, right? I'm just like, come on, like, surely I cannot be that bad. This has to be being blown out of proportion. Well, look, look at what he says next. Look at how he describes how, how we can know how dead we are. He says, you walk following the course of this world, meaning that the world system, cultures, right, and, and family units and countries and governments and whatever else you wanted to, to describe about how the world operates is by definition set up to be in opposition towards God and his kingdom, and in that opposition, guess what all of us do? We fall in line. We fall in line and join, join along. Now, not only that, right? Some of you guys are like, okay, I follow the world. What, I mean, am I really that guilty of that? Everyone else is doing it, right? Look at what else he says is true of us. Following the prince of the power of the air. Guess who he's talking about there? Satan. So, so here's what Paul is saying is true of us. We're on team Satan. Anybody really pumped up and excited right now? Right, Paul's saying that every human being is born into death and their team leader, their king, their prince is Satan. That they're following after him. Now, go, turn over to Isaiah 14 with me really quick because I want you guys to see something and understand something. Right, in Isaiah chapter 14, look at what... Isaiah says here, 
How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. Some of you guys might not have that translated that way. Some of you guys might have the word Lucifer there, right? He's talking about Satan here. So Satan has fallen, and look at what he says. How you are cut down from the ground who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, and I will set my throne on high, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high. See, the issue with Satan is that he was placed and created to be in, in control, right? And as a cherubim, protect the throne room. And in that, he rebelled because he wanted to rule and place himself above God. And all of us, Paul says, fall into that same trap where we are serving the prince of the power and air and trying to elevate him above our creator. Paul says that his spirit is at work in all who are not in Christ, who are not in Jesus. And so he says, look, you can see your deadness by the way that you submit and follow the world system around you. You can see it in the fact that you may not know it, but unwittingly, you are trying to rob God of his glory and place yourself there. Look at this last one. I think this one is the most clear and the most obvious back in Ephesians chapter 2. He says that we live in the passions of our flesh. What's he saying there? He's saying you can't even control your own cravings and desires. That's how bad our condition is. Have you, have you ever felt trapped or addicted? Just ask yourself that question. Have you ever felt trapped or addicted to something that you didn't want to be involved with anymore? I've been in ministry long enough to know that pretty much every single person I've ever talked to can answer yes to that question. Paul is saying, you aren't just struggling with some vice. You, you don't just make bad decisions. You are enslaved to your passions. You are in slavery because you are dead. You are stuck in what the world tells you is right and wrong. You are completely enslaved to your passions. And in following your passions, you follow the work that your prince wants you to do, which is to deny God his glory and live for yourself. So what, so, so what does that mean? What does that lead to? Okay, Kevin, all right, thanks. You know, I, I came to church this morning to be encouraged, and you're telling me I'm dead. Thank you. What, what, does, that, what does that then lead to? And he says this in verse 3. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to eliminate any thought that we might be okay on our own on our own standing, on our own merit, and what we did. We are all dead and deserving of God's wrath. Have you, ever, you ever heard, or have you ever found yourself saying, like, we have a sin nature? Yeah. It's actually really not even biblical to say that. I mean, it, it is true that you are born a sinner, but your nature is a child of wrath. 
th- like, think about that. Like, no, one, no one's in the delivery room and your child's born. You're like, oh, hi, little child of wrath. Like, no one does that. Except maybe the mom who just went through delivery. We're, we're excited, right? We see new life. It's this little baby there. And yet Paul said, when, when that child comes out, they are dead and deserving of God's wrath because spiritually their condition unto him is dead. See, guys, we have to understand this. We may not want to hear it, but we have to understand this because so, some of us are like, well, wait a minute, Kevin, get to the good stuff where, where, where Jesus is, is my savior and he's, he's the good guy and, and, and we love him and we can sing happy songs and we, we can sing songs like we did earlier where death has been defeated. But here's the thing, right? If we don't understand the magnitude of what Jesus defeated on the cross, you don't sing that song with the same fervor and worship that you're meant to. If you don't understand that you are dead, guess what? Dead people don't save themselves. Dead people don't fix themselves. Dead people don't change their behavior. They're dead. And without something of epic In supernatural proportions, there is nothing that can save us. Jesus dying for you can't be good unless you're made uncomfortable and shown how messed up and how hopeless you really are. We are dead and without hope. That is the universal human condition. There is nothing good going for us. And if, if we are dead spiritually, we don't need a good teacher. We don't need a better counselor. We don't need a new 10-step program for our, our, our best life to fix us. We don't need a life coach. We need a rescuer. If, if, if you have a heart attack in this room this morning, You need someone from a rescue squad to try to resuscitate you. You don't need your philosophy teacher. You don't need a football coach. You don't need someone who's got really great advice on how to manage your finances. You need someone that knows how to bring you back from death to life. And here on this side of heaven, there is not one human being that can do that other than Jesus. And so Paul says, look, you are dead and without hope. You need a rescuer. And and, and if I stopped there, we would all need some counseling. Like, okay, so Kevin has basically told me that my life is null and void and without purpose and that I can't fix myself. And by the way, I am spitting in the face of everything we are taught as Americans. Everything we're taught as Americans is if you work hard enough and do enough and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you can fix everything. And Maybe economically speaking, that might be true. Maybe educationally speaking, that may be true. Maybe from an economic standpoint, that may be true. But from a spiritual standpoint, you can't fix yourself. Then you get to verse 4, and look at what Paul says. And I'm just going to stop. 
after I get to the most important part of this passage. But God. You see, this doesn't say, but Kevin. It doesn't say, but your spiritual mentor, but your ministry, but your Bible study, but your quiet times, but your prayer life, but the good things you do in social justice to display the gospel. What does he say? But God. You are dead, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But God. I, I, th- I mean, think about that. He says that there is no hope for the human race but God. God, who is rich in mercy, meaning that he forgives that rebellion. Right? And when he forgives, he doesn't just say, okay, I forgive you. Right? He pays the penalty for your transgression and covers it with the blood of his son. And in covering that, and because of his great love for us, he doesn't just forgive you, but what does it say he does? He makes you alive again in Christ. He gives you life because here is the beautiful thing about Jesus and what God did in Jesus. Jesus was the only way that God the Father could have both acted to demand of you and I that our life matters and how we live matters and what we do matters and that our actions must worship him as God and sovereign creator. Jesus' life and death And burial and resurrection is the only way that God the Father could have displayed that we would be held accountable for our lives and yet still shown mercy to us. See, the gospel says this, that God is righteous and we are dead. The gospel says that Jesus, who is righteous, goes to the cross for crimes he didn't commit and willingly lays down his life in our place, that Jesus takes your record of guilt, my record of sinfulness and rebellion and death, and says, I'll pay that penalty. I'll pay that price. And he pays that price and dies on the cross. And then what does he give us? He transfers to you and to I his righteous standing as a son of the Father. Not rebellious, not dead. And he just gives it to you. He just says, okay, okay, Kevin, you've done absolutely nothing. You're dead. You bring nothing to the table. Here, be a son of the, the Most High God. 
because I choose to love you in your sin and rebellion. He makes me alive in Christ. Christian, I need you to hear me this morning. If you are a professing follower of Christ, here's what you need to know. Your identity is not in being a good Christian. Your identity is not in your ministry. Your identity is not in how much scripture or theology you know. Your identity is not rooted in how you serve the poor or serve the oppressed or serve widows and orphans. Your identity is in Jesus Christ. The Father does not look at you and say, oh, Kevin's a pastor who preaches. Okay, he's in. He doesn't look at you and say, okay, you've been reading your Bible on a consistent basis. You're in. He looks at you and says, if you are in Christ, you are my child. You are mine. I've adopted you. We're saved on the basis of Jesus' record, not our own. And this is why if, if your identity is in Christ, it changes everything. Right? It gives you assurance that if God saved you when you were unworthy, he's keeping you when you remain unworthy. When you pray, you pray not because God is required to hear you, or because you bring something special to the table, so he's definitely going to listen to you, you pray because you are in Christ and he hears you because he loves the Son. Right? When you live, when you live unto God and you are in Christ, God sanctifies you and increases you in holiness and uses you because you are in Christ. You are worthy to be used for the kingdom of God because you are in Christ. If you are in him, that is who you are and you cannot mess it up. I remember years ago when I was in college and I was at a, at a retreat over spring break, there was a guy who worked for, for Campus Crusade for Christ at the time, which has changed its name to Crew, but I, I think this guy still works for them and his name was Roger Hershey. And, and he gave this illustration that radically changed my life. I'd been a Christian for about 18 months, and I was kind of over that spiritual high of uh, uh, understanding intellectually the gospel. And there didn't, when, I, when I read my Bible, there wasn't as much life kind of breathed into me, and I, I wasn't excited about everything, and I wasn't praying constantly without ceasing, and I wasn't doing all these things that had just come so easy to me and naturally to, naturally to me when I had first fallen in love with Christ and what he had done. And so I, I was struggling. I was struggling to read my Bible. I was struggling to pray. I was struggling to find life and ministry and what God had called me to. And, and he gave this illustration, and he, and he brought it out, and he kind of put a graph up in front of the entire room. Right? And that graph just showed right, a, a, a pattern of consistently increasing. Right? And he said on the y-axis, right, at the top of that vertical axis was, was God and knowing him perfectly. And, and the x-axis was time, over time. And so what that graph was showing is that over time we were growing in holiness and getting closer to God is what the graph was basically showing. 
and he's, and, he, and he's sitting there talking about this, and he says, okay, here, here at this bottom part, in the, in the bottom left-hand corner, is there's no time having started, and there's no increasing in holiness. And he circled that little corner, and he said, that's the moment of belief when you become saved in Christ. And he said, I want to ask you guys a question. How many of you guys were, were, were saved at that moment that you circled on, on this, this, this graph because you had perfect quiet times and you were a perfectly obedient Christian and everything you did was unto God and you lived for him and you were perfect? And obviously no one raised their hands, right? Because why, we knew, right, at that moment, what saved us at that moment? Christ. Jesus he was, he was the starting point and the fuel for everything. And then, and then as he started growing, he just started moving up, moving up, right, that, that graph, right, and started, oh, okay, I'm, growing, I'm increasing in holiness, right? Here's where some of us start to, to lose our way and lose our identity. We start thinking that we become more holy simply because we read our Bible or simply because we pray more than someone else or simply because we're a better servant than somebody else. That we're more worthy of being more holy than someone else. And, and, and this is what he said. And I loved it because the, the chart had times where you, were, you would be going up and there'd be times when you'd be going down. And here's what Roger Hershey said. If your identity is in Christ, when God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees his perfect son who died for you. God doesn't think any more of you when you are doing great, and he doesn't think any less of you when you are doing poorly. When he looks at you, he sees you as his son because Jesus died in your place. He doesn't see anything else. And so your sanctification is not based upon your performance. Your position with God is not based upon your performance. It's based upon Jesus. And if you understand that and see that and know that, it changes everything. You go from living on this roller coaster of being a good Christian or being a bad Christian and going up and down all the time to being, I'm in Christ. And he who has begun a good work in me will see it through to the day of Christ Jesus because that is the promise that my God makes over me. That he, the promise he makes in Ephesians 1 that you are chosen before the foundations of the world to be in Christ. That you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit declaring that because the Holy Spirit lives in you, you are his. And you can't do away with it. So, so here's what we have seen. Right, Paul says, Ephesian church, I love you guys. I do. Right? I, I helped start this church. I, I love you guys. But we are dead unto God. Dead. Not just bad. Dead. Hopeless. But who is rich and his mercy rescues us. And here's what this declares. Jesus is the hero. You, you, you and I, we don't, we, don't, we don't get to be the hero of our own story. Jesus is. 
we'll, I, I love verse 7. Let me read verse 7 to you again. He says, so that in the coming ages, he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know, you know what Paul's saying there? He's saying that if we recognize how hopeless we are, how dead we are, but then understand and recognize, but God saves us. How long is it going to take us to understand and worship and love and grasp the magnitude of God's love for us? What does Paul say there? How long is it going to take? Eternity. So that in the ages to come, we might actually understand on some level the immeasurable riches of God's grace toward us. You don't, you don't get to figure it all out here on, on earth. It is going to take us eternity to understand how great God is. How rich in mercy he is. So let's summarize everything because that's what Paul does in verses 8 through 10. Right? Look at this. He says this. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them four things I want you to notice here at the end four things okay number one grace saved you right that means that means grace was done to you by God it means God chose to extend mercy to you when you didn't deserve it. It means it was passively done. You didn't demand it of him and he submit to you. It was passively done to you by God because he chose you. And in that grace saving you, the instrument of that grace is faith. Right? You are saved by grace through faith. So it is the tool or instrument that this happens. Now, let me, let me pause because I, I, I want to clear up maybe some misunderstanding of what that might lead some of us to believe. Right? If I'm saying that, that God chose to save you and dispensed grace to you, but that the instrument was faith, I am not saying that faith is a work. There are, there are many people that with the way that they will describe faith and your belief and whatever happens, that it, it'll make you think that there's like different levels of faith you can have and in those different levels will demand on whether you're a Christian or not. Right? And, and Paul completely dispels that. Look at the, look at the second half of verse 8 and into verse 9, right? He says, and this is not of your own doing, meaning your faith and works as a faith is not your own doing. And then he gets to verse 9, not a result of works, meaning that, that works will not save. So let me give you an illustration to try to help understand how, how faith works in this situation. Right? In the Old Testament, and, I, and I'm taking this illustration from, from J.D. Greer. He's the pastor of Summit Church up in North Carolina. And this is, this is a beautiful illustration of how to understand faith. Okay, so in the Old Testament, right, when, when atonement for sin happened, you would come to the tabernacle or you would go to the temple and you would bring an unblemished lamb to sacrifice. And what that, what that lamb was supposed to be is that lamb positionally was taking on your sin so that the wrath of God would be poured out on that lamb and you would be forgiven. 
that God's wrath would be appeased on that lamb and you would be forgiven. And so what would happen is you would come into the tabernacle and what would happen is you would walk up to the place where you would sacrifice that lamb and a priest would lay their hand on the lamb. And what that was showing is that that sin, right, was being transferred onto the lamb. So, so that then displayed that the guilt that they had was being transferred. Faith is the hand laying our hand on the lamb. Faith is you taking your hand and laying it on the lamb, Jesus Christ. I'm transferring and recognize that my guilt has been transferred to Jesus. It's a recognition of what is happening. Faith is not something you conjure up and display. It's a recognition of this is what is happening. I've gone from trusting in myself and believing that I'm not dead and can save myself to realizing I'm dead and I'm transferring that death and that guilt and that sin and that rebellion to the only one that can save me, the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And so he says here in in verses 8 through 10, that, that grace saves us and that's done through faith. But look at the result. And, the, and here's the problem, right? I think evangelical Christianity in the United States stops at verse 8. And I think this is the biggest reason why those outside of the church look at the church and say, you're a bunch of hypocrites. Do you want to know why? Because we are. We're really good at understanding verse 8. Okay, I'm saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. The end result, though, according to Paul, is not just some intellectual assent and theological truth about you being saved, but look at what he says. The result of that salvation and that new identity in Christ is what? Good works. Not a result of works that no one may boast, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. If you are really in Christ, you will grow and live unto God. You will see an increasing in holiness in your life. And you will seek to do the will of your Father in heaven, ultimately not your own. I'm going to ask you guys a really tough question right now. Because, you, because we all need to wrestle with it. Am I really saved? Your works don't save you, but guess what? They're the demonstration of the fruit of your identity and who you really are. You can't profess to be in Christ and then deny him with everything that you do. And guys, guess what? Many of those that sit outside of our community and our walls, and I'm not just talking about Aletheia Church, I'm talking about the church. Look at us, and they hear us scream, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. And they say, well, that's all good and fine. You can articulate verse 8 really well, but you don't live it out. I don't see any change in you. I don't see any evidence that God is working in you. 
And instead of slinging back insults and defending yourself, and I think one of the things that's most disappointing to me about the age we're currently in is that no one can have a discussion or introspect. They just look up a meme on the internet and throw it up. And they think because you posted something that's funny with a picture of the guy from Lord of the Rings that you've somehow won an argument. Take a step back. Shut your mouth. Examine yourself. You ever read the book of 1 John? That's what John says you should constantly be doing, is examining yourself and asking yourself, am I really in the faith? Do I really get how dead I was before Jesus? Do I really get that in him rescuing me, I have been set aside unto good works? And notice how Paul doesn't say you're set aside to good works to live a perfect life. He just says you're going to live unto God and not to yourself anymore. That your priorities change. And that you live unto making much of him. And he says that we can know all of this to be true because, and that God is going to do this. That you will, if you are in Christ, some of you guys have been Christians long enough to know this. If you are really in Christ, you cannot escape this. You may even try to run away. You, can, you can't escape it. God is going to do a work in you. You cannot stop it. Because look at what he says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which what? God prepared beforehand, meaning they've been set aside, God's promised that they're going to happen, and you will follow through on it. God will do this to you so that we should walk in them. Here's what I'm going to ask you guys to do this morning. We're, we're going to have a time of, of response right now. Okay. And, and what, what, we, what we try to do here every week at Aletheia Church is after, after we sing and after we, we, we preach some of the, the, the Bible to you and talk about what God has done for us, right, we want to give you the opportunity with whatever God is doing in your heart right now to respond to that. And we, and we offer that in a couple different ways, right? We're going to have the band come up here, and they're going to they're gonna lead us in, in some more worship and some more songs so that you can respond in, in, in music and worship God in spirit and truth and in music. We're also going to extend to you the opportunity to just sit in your seat and silently pray. Ask God to examine your heart, to shine a light in, in on where there's darkness and a lack of repentance and to trust in him. We're going to give you the opportunity to respond in communion. And, and communion is an opportunity for us to worship God if we are followers and in Christ. And, and what we're doing when we take communion is we're, we're coming up here and we're not contrite and we're not heartbroken and we're not weeping. Right? Communion is an act of worship because what we're saying is Jesus died and rose again. And because of his flesh and blood poured out for me, I live. And I don't need to earn God's favor because Jesus earned it for me on the cross. And so we take communion hopeful as an act of worship, thanking Jesus that he willingly laid down his life and then rose again for our behalf. And if you're not a Christian, I would ask that you not take communion because it doesn't mean anything to you. For a Christian, our entire worldview and life is built upon the fact that Jesus came and died for us and rose again. And then you can respond Right, by giving, right? We've got places in the back where you can give and respond to God with the, with the giving of money to go towards the advancement of the gospel. 
Right? We don't talk about money here much, right? And most of you guys don't have any, and that's fine. Give what you do have. Give your time. Give your talents. Give your gifts. For you are his workmanship in Christ Jesus, created for good works. So what I'm asking you to do, if somebody would turn down the lights for me, I'm going to leave you with this. God takes dead things and breathes life into them. And if you are in Christ, you are alive because of him. Christian, here's what I would ask you to do. If you are a Christian here this morning and you're reflecting on this, here's what I would encourage you to do. Let him save you again and again and again and again. Let him save you and never grow tired of being reminded of the fact that you were dead and now alive because of Jesus. Ask him to speak life into you daily so that you might live in good works and joy unto him. You should never grow weary of being reminded of who you were and what he's done. If you're, if you're not a Christian here this morning, why? Why not? If you sit there and honestly examine your life, maybe you're not the worst person in the world. Maybe you're not addicted to drugs or alcohol. You're not sleeping around and, and treating people terribly. Maybe you're a pretty good person. But if you examine yourself and ask God to shine a light into the darkest places of your heart, here's what I know to be true of you. You're dead. You're dead. You may have a pulse. You may be breathing, breathing oxygen right now. But unto God, right now, if you are not in Christ, you are dead enslaved to the passions of your flesh and serving the prince of the power of the air. But it doesn't have to be that way. Right, this morning, God is calling you out of the grave. Come to life in my son. My son, who did not consider equality with the Father something to be grasped, but emptied himself to the form of a bondservant and submitting himself to an unjust death, a death on the cross, so that the penalty and the wages for your death and sin and rebellion would be paid once and for all, and he rose again to offer you new life. You have two options this morning. You can stay dead or you can trust Jesus and for the first time in your life on this earth, be truly alive. Truly alive, knowing that you have purpose. That you weren't just haphazardly an accident by some molecules moving and accidentally evolving, but that God created you with purpose and with conviction. 
And that conviction is to know him as your creator and your savior and your king and to live unto him. You can have all the money in the world, all the education in the world, the perfect family, the perfect life, and be dead. Won't you submit your life unto him and live unto him by trusting in Jesus as your Savior this morning. I'm going to pray for us and invite you to respond in all the ways that I mentioned earlier in prayer, in song, in communion, and in giving. And then I'm going to go back to my seat and I'm going to take communion and I'm going to worship with you because I need Jesus just as much as you. He's my everything. Without him, Father, you are so good. Father, awaken our hearts to the reality of our true condition, which is apart from you, we are dead. As I, as I think about that, I think about my grandfathers, who I love dearly and I can't speak to anymore because they're no longer alive. I think about friends in high school who I knew whose lives were cut short because of car accidents or cancer. I can't speak to them anymore. They can't speak into my life anymore. They can't offer me sage wisdom or do advice because they're dead. And God, you say that is true of each and every one of us in regards to you. Father, reveal the level of our condition to us so that we might surrender that and be given new life in Christ. And Father, thank you that you did not hold back anything but sent your own son to die in our place and to give us new life and that our identity now screams out if we've done that that we are chosen that we have sight and that we are loved and alive father if there's anyone that does not know you as god and king this morning father i beg you to breathe life into them right now because my words are just that they're words but you can breathe life. Father, if there's men and women in here this morning struggling with addiction and sin, Father, shine a light on that death. Convict them, call them to repentance and trust in you for new life. Lord, in ourselves, there's nothing but death and misery, but in you, there's life and joy. Father, help us to experience that. So that we might be a church that declares the glories of Jesus because he is worthy. Father, I love you. And I ask this all.